this is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. Open your Bibles this morning to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. If you're using one of the Bibles in the pews, it's on page 900. If you're new today, we've been walking through the Gospel of John, and the title of the series is, Who is Jesus? We're focusing between now and moving through for a couple of weeks, Easter and beyond, on asking that question, Who is Jesus? And so we're walking through the Gospel of John, and we come today to the 13th chapter of John, and we're talking about a demonstration of Love. We've moved into the part of John now that scholars call the upper room discourse. Really, for the next five chapters, we're going to be in the upper room in Jerusalem with Jesus and his apostles as Jesus is really just pouring himself, pouring his heart into these guys and into us the night before he goes to the cross. And so let's look at it together. The 13th chapter of John, and beginning with verse 1. The Bible says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, Lord, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but, my, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, 
but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while, I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say also to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the Scripture this morning and to apply the Scripture to our lives. As Jesus says on this night, we're blessed if we do these things. Not just hear about these things, but put them into practice. And so, Father, help us to put love into practice, to become servants to one another, to sacrifice for one another, to love one another as you have loved us. So show us your love today. Show us yourself, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Once there was a king who set aside a day to honor the greatest subject in his kingdom. And so a huge crowd gathered in the palace courtyard and four finalists were brought in. The first was a wealthy philanthropist and this man had given much of his fortune to the poor, had built schools and orphanages and hospitals throughout the land. The second was a celebrated physician and she had used her skills in medicine to save many lives and had invented medicines that had saved many more. The third finalist was a renowned judge. And this judge was known for the wisdom and the fairness and the brilliance of his decisions. And then the fourth finalist was brought in. She was an elderly woman, very humble in her appearance. 
And the crowd began to whisper because no one knew who she was. And the king didn't even know who she was. And so he asked one of his attendants who she was. And the attendant whispered back to him, Your Majesty, do you see the, uh, the philanthropist and the doctor and the judge? Well, this woman was their teacher. She had no wealth, no exalted title, but through her life of humble service, countless numbers of people had been helped and healed and protected. It was kind of that way with Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, Jesus was born into a family that was so poor, so lacking in power or influence that he's they can't get a room for his mother to bear her child, and so he, Jesus is born in an animal pen. His crib is a feeding trough that was used for animals. He was raised in Nazareth, which was such a tiny backwater town that it was the brunt of jokes. People made fun of Nazareth. He spent most of his life as a manual laborer, He had no military force to back him, never held political office. And yet his life splits time into B.C. and A.D. And today we go with Jesus into the upper room in Jerusalem as he pours himself into his disciples in these next five chapters of John. What do we see here today in chapter 13 of John? First of all, we see love portrayed. The Bible says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper... When the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. Now, what we see here is that Jesus is in total control of everything that was happening. Everything that was going to happen that night, everything that was going to happen the next day, and for the days beyond. Judas is not in control. The Pharisees are not in control. The chief priests are not in control. The Sadducees are not in control. The Romans are not in control. Pilate is not in control. Herod is not in control. Jesus is in total control of everything that was happening. All things had been given into His hand and everything that was taking place was part of God's master plan for our redemption. And then verses 4 and 5 tell us that at a certain point Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside His outer garments, taking a towel and tied it around His waist. And then He poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Now, we really need to try to go back to the first century 
and put ourselves into the position of the other men in this room to fully understand this. Because as Christians, we read this and we think, wow, what a, what a loving act of service. And of course it was. But we need to understand how shocking and how scandalous this was. This was not something that good, upstanding people did. This was not even something that Jewish slaves did. This was something washing feet that was reserved for the lowest of the low in society. Gentile slaves. And Jesus, who's been raised in this culture, knows exactly what he's doing and what they were thinking. I mean, just imagine it. It's dead silence in the room. No one says a word All you can hear is maybe just the gentle sloshing of the water and maybe the the labored breathing of Jesus as he goes from man to man, the rubbing as he washes dirty feet. There was silence. It was like an embarrassed silence. It was shocking and and, and scandalous what was happening. And, And finally... Peter, who was usually the spokesman for the group, breaks the silence. He totally objects to what Jesus is doing. And Jesus sort of has to set him straight. And then Jesus explains what he's doing, beginning in verse 12. It says, When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and had resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me Lord and teacher, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Throughout the Gospels, when you read the four Gospels, you see that several times Jesus has to, these guys are jockeying for position. Each of them wants to kind of be the top dog. And so they get into these arguments that all kind of revolve around jockeying for position and power. And several times in the Gospels, you see, Jesus kind of has to call time out and call them together and say, look guys, this is This is not what it's about. That's what the world is about. That's how the world does things. But that's not the way it is in my kingdom. In my kingdom, the greatest among you is the one who serves. But on this night, the night before he goes to the cross, Jesus is just going to drive this home in a way that they would never forget. He does it through his actions, and he does it through his words. New Testament scholar D.A. Carson says this, One of the ways human pride manifests itself is in refusing to take the lower role. But now that Jesus, their Lord and teacher, has washed their feet, an unthinkable act, there is every reason why they also should wash one another's feet, and no conceivable reason for refusing to do so. And then in verse 17, 
Jesus just sort of administers the, the coup de grace to what he's teaching them. He says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. It's not enough just to intellectually understand that we're supposed to be servants. It's not enough. The blessing comes when we put this into practice and we begin to serve. And so, what does that mean for us? You know, it means that we wake up in the morning with the mentality that we're here to serve and not to be served. Beginning with the people who are closest to us and our own families. Uh, serving your spouse instead of waiting for them to serve you. you know, serving your children, your family, instead of sitting back and waiting to be served, beginning to see life as a servant and to look for opportunities to put other people first and to actively serve other people in love. And we take that mentality to the, the workplace. You know, as believers, you know, each of us should seek to, to, to proactively take the lead in helping and serving other people. May you be known, wherever your context of work is, may you be known as the one who, who takes the initiative to serve other people, who has a willing spirit, a spirit of love to go above and beyond and to help other people instead of waiting to be served. And that way, when we share the good news of Christ with people, they're more willing to listen. It's about viewing ourselves as a servant in the church, in the body of Christ. It means that instead of seeing the church as sort of a provider of spiritual goods and services, that we see the church as a place of worship and of ministry, where we're involved in ministry, and there's a, a willingness to, to give of our time and to give of our talents and our gifts and our treasures to serve in the body of Christ, whether that's you know serving in your Sunday school class, willingness to teach or to to be a, a ministry leader, a care leader, outreach leader, get there early, bring food, welcome people, arrange socials, open up your homes to other people, a willingness to serve on a ministry team or a committee, or uh, on and on. The opportunities are endless. But it's about beginning to, to be a, a contributor to ministry and not just a consumer of ministry a willingness to serve love portrayed second we see in this passage love betrayed verse 18 jesus says i'm not speaking of all of you i know whom i have chosen but the scripture will be fulfilled he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me Jesus here is quoting from Psalm 41.9, which says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. The paintings of that night 
often portrayed Judas as sort of a sinister, sneaky, slimy-looking sort of guy. He's got the money bag and so forth. But it's important to remember that, with the exception of Jesus, none of these guys have any idea that it's Judas. He's not under suspicion or anything like that. They don't have a clue that it's him, and that's obvious from what it says here in verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. Verse 23. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, that's John, was reclining at table at Jesus' side So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Now you really see the closeness here between Jesus and the author of this gospel, John. Um, John refers to himself throughout this gospel, not by name, but as the disciple Jesus Loved. What a wonderful way to think of yourself. What an accurate way to think of yourself. If you're a Christian, if you've trusted in Christ as your Savior and Lord, you have been adopted as a son or daughter of the King. And He loves you. And whether you're a man or a woman, a boy or girl, a husband or wife, a son or daughter, whatever your occupation is, you know, whether you're a plumber or a teacher or a doctor or an electrician or whatever it is, a homemaker or whatever you do before any of that. You are a disciple Jesus loves. And before you think of yourself and define yourself, by what you do, think of yourself and define yourself by whose you are. You belong to Him. You're loved by Him. You're a disciple Jesus loves before anything else. And we really see here the closeness between John and Jesus. John was extremely young when this took place. He might not have even been 20 years old on that night. And you get the feeling that Jesus really looked at John as sort of a little brother. They were, he was very close to him. Jesus had a, just a special heart for John. And on this night, John is sitting to the right of Jesus, actually reclining to the right of Jesus. Da Vinci's painting of the Last Supper where they're all sitting up in chairs around a long table. It's beautiful art, but that's not the way it looked at all. Because they were reclining. They would have been reclining on pillows around a very low table. They would have been resting on their left elbows. And so John is to the right of Jesus. So all he has to do to to put his ear up against the chest of Jesus, he's already on his left elbow, and he just simply leans back and says, Lord, Who is it? And Jesus answered, It is he to whom I give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. 
So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Already this night, Jesus has lovingly washed the feet of Judas, just like all the others. And now Jesus dips the bread and he holds out his hand to Judas and offers it to him. And and it's like Jesus is holding out more than just this morsel of bread to Judas. It's like he's holding out his, his heart, holding out opportunity, one last opportunity to Judas and saying, Judas, I love you. Open your heart to me. Come back to me. And of course, we know the fateful decision that Judas makes. And John says in verse 30, after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. Now we see the power, John's power as a writer at the end of verse 30. When John says that it was night, he doesn't just mean it was dark outside. He's talking about the, the darkness in the heart of Judas. It was night in his heart. Love betrayed. Third, love commanded. Verse 31, And when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while, I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Now, why was this a new commandment? commandment because the old testament says several times that we're to love one another it's six words that make it new just as i have loved you people before this time couldn't do that because they hadn't seen jesus's love in action but these guys had and we have and he calls us to love one another as in the way that he has loved us. And furthermore, Jesus says that people will know the reality. They will see that our faith is real if we love one another. And if we don't want another love one another, they'll conclude that we're not real. He says in verse 35, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have Love for one another. That's a sobering statement, isn't it? Because Jesus is saying that if we don't love one another, the world has every right to look at us and say, you're not real. You're not real. Because you don't love each other. John MacArthur says this, the church may be orthodox in its doctrine and vigorous in its proclamation of the truth, but that will not persuade unbelievers unless believers love one another. I was struck this week by something that I heard about one of our 
Olympic athletes. It was the American snowboarder Kelly Clark. And I read that on her board is this message. Jesus, I cannot hide my love. When I read this, I immediately, immediately started Googling. <laughs> so I got to know, know more about this young woman and her story. And I read her testimony. And by the time she was 18, Kelly had already won a gold medal, had already had all the fame and the money that comes along with that. But something was missing in her life. And one day in 2004, she was at an event competing, and one of her competitors fell. In fact, she fell twice. She fell on one, one run and then fell on her next run. And when she came off, this young woman was crying. And Kelly overheard her friend comforting her. And her friend said to this young woman who was crying, she said, hey, it's all right. God still loves you. And Kelly Clark could not get those words out of her mind. She had not grown up in church. In fact, she'd never been to church. Never really even thought much about God at all. But when she heard those words, hey, it's all right. God still loves you. She couldn't shake it. And she knew what she was going to do that day when she went back to her hotel room. She was going to open the drawer and pull out the Bible that had been placed there. And she did that, and she began to read. And then it dawned on her that the young woman who had said those words was also stayed in the hotel. And so she found out her room, went and knocked on her door, and she said, Hey, I'm Kelly, and I have a feeling you're probably a Christian and I want you to tell me about God. It was the witness of one Christian loving another that God used to bring Kelly Clark to himself. That's really what the Lord's table is all about. We sometimes call it communion because it's, it's communion with one another and with God. In love. It's something that we do together. We do this as a church family. We do this as brothers and sisters because we are united in love. Let's prepare our hearts as we get ready to do it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great love that we see demonstrated in John 13. Father, we ask you for the grace to love one another as you have loved us. Indeed, we love because you first loved us. It's, it's understanding first how much we have been loved by you that enables us to love others. And in the Lord's Supper, we, we see your love just demonstrated so clearly that your blood was shed for us, that your body was broken for us, for our sins, so that all who trust in what you've done can have new life and eternal life. 
And Lord, you tell us to prepare our hearts before we take part in this. This is a time really for us to examine ourselves. And Father, we pray that if there is unconfessed sin in our lives, that right now we would just come before you in in a very real way, in an authentic way, in a transparent way, and just acknowledge our sins to you. You you already know our hearts anyway. Lord, help us to be authentic and real before you. We pray that if anything is hindering our fellowship with you, that we would come before you and just confess that and, and by your grace seek to turn from that. Lord, if there are relationships in our lives that are not right, Um, if there's unforgiveness, if there's any sort of a a grudge in our hearts, any, any hardness in our hearts toward a brother or sister in Christ or someone else, Lord, we, we pray that, that we would just confess that and, and deal with that right now. And so Lord, help us to just examine our hearts before you. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1.12, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father, and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with him. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you too. Come to one of our services. We worship at 8.30 and 11 on Sunday mornings. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I could help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.